Chapter 16 of The Mystery of 31 New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R. E. Faust. The Mystery of 31 New Inn by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter 16 An Exposition and a Tragedy. Part 2. Here then we have three important facts. One is that the spectacles found by us at Kennington Lane were undoubtedly Jeffreys. For it is as unlikely that there exists another pair of spectacles exactly identical with those as that there exists another face exactly like Jeffrey's face. The second fact is that the description of Jeffrey tallies completely with that of the sick man Graves as given by Dr. Jarvis. And the third is that when Jeffrey was seen by Mr. Hindley, there was no sign of his being addicted to the taking of morphine. The first and second facts, you will agree, constitute complete identification. Yes, said Marchmont. I think we must admit the identification has been quite conclusive, though the evidence is of a kind that is more striking to the medical than the legal mind. You will not have that complaint to make against the next item of evidence, said Thorndyke. It is after the lawyer's own heart, as you shall hear. A few days ago, I wrote to Mr. Stephen, asking him if he possessed a recent photograph of his uncle Geoffrey. He had one, and he sent it to me by return. This portrait I showed to Dr. Jarvis, and asked him if he had ever seen the person it represented. After examining it attentively, without any hint whatever from me, he identified it as the portrait of the sick man, Graves. Indeed, exclaimed Marchmont. This is most important. Are you prepared to swear to the identity, Dr. Jarvis? I have not the slightest doubt, I replied, that the portrait is that of Mr. Graves. Excellent, said Marchmont, rubbing his hands gleefully. This will be much more convincing to a jury. Pray go on, Dr. Thorndyke. That, said Thorndyke, completes the first part of my investigation. We had now reached a definite, demonstrable fact, and that fact, as you see, disposed at once of the main question, the genuineness of the will. For if the man at Kennington Lane was Geoffrey Blackmore, then the man at New Inn was not. But it was the latter who had signed the will. Therefore, the will was not signed by Geoffrey Blackmore. That is to say, it was a forgery. The case was complete for the purposes of the civil proceedings. The rest of my investigations had reference to the criminal prosecution that was inevitable. Shall I proceed, or is your interest confined to the will? Hang the will! exclaimed Stephen. I want to hear how you propose to lay hands on the villain who murdered poor old Uncle Geoffrey, for I suppose he did murder him. I think there is no doubt of it, replied Thorndyke. Then, said Marchmont, you will hear the rest of the argument if you please. Very well, said Thorndyke. As the evidence stands, we have proved that Geoffrey Blackmore was a prisoner in the house in Kennington Lane, and that someone was personating him at New Inn. That someone, we have seen, was in all probability John Blackmore. We have now to consider the man Vice. Who was he? And can we connect him in any way with New Inn? We may note, in passing, that Vice and the coachman were apparently one and the same person. They were never seen together. 
When Vice was present, the coachman was not available even for so urgent a service as the obtaining of an antidote to the poison. Vice always appeared sometime after Jarvis's arrival and disappeared sometime before his departure, in each case sufficiently long to allow of a change of disguise. But we need not labour the point, as it is not of primary importance. To return to Vice, he was clearly heavily disguised, as we can see by his unwillingness to show himself even by the light of a candle. But there is an item of positive evidence on this point, which is important from having other bearings. It is furnished by the spectacles worn by Vice, of which you have heard Jarvis's description. These spectacles had very peculiar optical properties. When you looked through them, they had the properties of plain glass. When you looked at them, they had the appearance of lenses. But only one kind of glass possesses these properties, namely that which, like an ordinary watch glass, has curved parallel surfaces. But for what purpose could a person wear watch glass spectacles? Clearly not to assist his vision. The only alternative is disguise. The properties of these spectacles introduce a very curious and interesting feature into the case. To the majority of persons, the wearing of spectacles for the purpose of disguise or personation seems a perfectly simple and easy proceeding. But to a person of normal eyesight, it is nothing of the kind. For if he wears spectacles suited for long sight, he cannot see distinctly through them at all. While if he wears concave or near sight glasses, the effort to see through them produces such strain and fatigue that his eyes become disabled altogether. On the stage, the difficulty is met by using spectacles of plain window glass. But in real life, this would hardly do. The property spectacles would be detected at once and give rise to suspicion. The personator is therefore in this dilemma. If he wears actual spectacles, he cannot see through them. If he wears sham spectacles of plain glass, his disguise will probably be detected. There is only one way out of the difficulty, and that not a very satisfactory one, but Mr. Vice seems to have adopted it in lieu of a better. It is that of using watch glass spectacles, such as I have described. Now what do we learn from these very peculiar glasses? In the first place, they confirm our opinion that Vice was wearing a disguise. But for use in a room so very dimly lighted, the ordinary stage spectacles would have answered quite well. The second inference is then that these spectacles were prepared to be worn under more trying conditions of light, out of doors for instance. The third inference is that Vice was a man with normal eyesight, for otherwise he could have worn real spectacles suited to the state of his vision. These are inferences, by the way, to which we may return. But these glasses furnish a much more important suggestion. On the floor of the bedroom at New Inn, I found some fragments of glass which had been trodden on. By joining one or two of them together, we have been able to make out the general character of the object of which they formed parts. My assistant, who was formerly a watchmaker, judged that object to be the thin crystal glass of a lady's watch, and this, I think, was Jarvis's opinion. But the small part which remains of the original edge furnishes proof in two respects that this was not a watch glass. In the first place, on taking a careful tracing of the piece of the edge, I found that its curve was part of an ellipse, but watch glasses nowadays are invariably circular. In the second place, watch glasses are ground on the edge to a single bevel to snap into the bezel or frame, 
but the edge of this object was ground to a double bevel, like the edge of a spectacle glass, which fits into a groove in the frame and is held by the side bar screw. The inevitable inference was that this was a spectacle glass, but if so, it was part of a pair of spectacles identical in properties with those worn by Mr. Weiss. The importance of this conclusion emerges when we consider the exceptional character of Mr. Weiss's spectacles. They were not merely peculiar or remarkable, they were probably unique. It is exceedingly likely that there is not in the entire world another similar pair of spectacles. Whence the finding of these fragments of glass in the bedroom establishes a considerable probability that Mr. Weiss was, at some time, in the chambers at New Inn. And now, let us gather up the threads of this part of the argument. We are inquiring into the identity of the man Weiss. Who was he? In the first place, we find him committing a secret crime from which John Blackmore alone will benefit. This suggests the prima facie probability that he was John Blackmore. Then we find that he was a man of normal eyesight who was wearing spectacles for the purpose of disguise. But the tenant of New Inn, whom we have seen to be almost certainly John Blackmore, and whom we will for the present assume to have been John Blackmore, was a man with normal eyesight who wore spectacles for disguise. John Blackmore did not reside at New Inn, but at some place within easy reach of it. But Vice resided in a place within easy reach of New Inn. John Blackmore must have had possession and control of the person of Geoffrey, but Vice had possession and control of the person of Geoffrey. Vice wore spectacles of a certain peculiar and probably unique character, but portions of such spectacles were found in the chambers at New Inn. The overwhelming probability, therefore, is that Vice and the tenant of New Inn were one and the same person, and that that person was John Blackmore. That, said Mr. Windward, is a very plausible argument. But you observe, sir, that it contains an undistributed middle term. Thorndyke smiled genially. I think he forgave Windward everything for that remark. You are quite right, sir, he said. It does. And for that reason, the demonstration is not absolute. But we must not forget what logicians seem occasionally to overlook that the undistributed middle, while it interferes with absolute proof, may be quite consistent with a degree of probability that approaches very near to certainty. Both the Batillion system and the English fingerprint system involve a process of reasoning in which the middle term is undistributed, but the great probabilities are accepted in practice as equivalent to certainties. Mr. Winwood grunted a grudging assent and Thorndyke resumed. We have now furnished fairly conclusive evidence on three heads. We have proved that the sick man, Graves, was Geoffrey Blackmore, that the tenant of New Inn was John Blackmore, and that the man Vice was also John Blackmore. We now have to prove that John and Geoffrey were together in the chambers at New Inn on the night of Geoffrey's death. We know that two persons, and two persons only, came from Kennington Lane to New Inn. But one of those persons was the tenant of New Inn, that is, John Blackmore. Who was the other? Geoffrey is known by us to have been at Kennington Lane. His body was found on the following morning in the room at New Inn. No third person is known to have come from Kennington Lane. No third person is known to have arrived at New Inn. The inference, by exclusion, is that the second person, the woman, was Geoffrey. 
Again, Geoffrey had to be brought from Kennington to the inn by John. But John was personating Geoffrey and was made up to resemble him very closely. If Geoffrey were undisguised, the two men would be almost exactly alike, which would be very noticeable in any case and suspicious after the death of one of them. Therefore, Geoffrey would have to be disguised in some way. And what disguise could be simpler and more effective than the one that I suggest was used? Again, it was unavoidable that someone, the cabman, should know that Geoffrey was not alone when he came to the inn that night. If the fact had leaked out and it had become known that a man had accompanied him to his chambers, some suspicion might have arisen, and that suspicion would have pointed to John, who was directly interested in his brother's death. But if it had transpired that Geoffrey was accompanied by a woman, there would have been less suspicion, and that suspicion would not have pointed to John Blackmore. Thus, all the general probabilities are in favour of the hypothesis that this woman was Geoffrey Blackmore. There is, however, an item of positive evidence that strongly supports this view. When I examined the clothing of the deceased, I found on the trousers a horizontal crease on each leg, as if the trousers had been turned up halfway to the knees. This appearance is quite understandable if we suppose that the trousers were worn under a skirt and were turned up so that they should not be accidentally seen. Otherwise, it is quite incomprehensible. Is it not rather strange, said Marchmont, that Geoffrey should have allowed himself to be dressed up in this remarkable manner? I think not, replied Thorndyke. There is no reason to suppose that he knew how he was dressed. You have heard Jarvis's description of his condition, that of a mere automaton. You know that without his spectacles he was practically blind, and that he could not have worn them since we found them at the house in Kennington Lane. Probably his head was wrapped up in the veil, and the skirt and mantle put on afterwards. But, in any case, his condition rendered him practically devoid of willpower. That is all the evidence I have to prove that the unknown woman was Geoffrey. It is not conclusive, but it is convincing enough for our purpose seeing that the case against John Blackmore does not depend upon it. "'Your case against him is on the charge of murder, I presume,' said Stephen. "'Undoubtedly. And you will notice that the statements made by the supposed Geoffrey to the porter hinting at suicide are now important evidence. By the light of what we know, the announcement of intended suicide becomes the announcement of intended murder. It conclusively disproves what it was intended to prove, that Geoffrey died by his own hand. Yes, I see that, said Stephen, and then after a pause he asked, Did you identify Mrs. Shallybaum? You have told us nothing about her. I have considered her as being outside the case as far as I am concerned, replied Thorndyke. She was an accessory. My business was with the principal, but of course she will be swept up in the net. The evidence that convicts John Blackmore will convict her. I have not troubled about her identity. If John Blackmore is married, she is probably his wife. Do you happen to know if he is married? Yes, but Mrs. John Blackmore is not much like Mrs. Shallybaum, except in that she has a cast in the left eye. She is a dark woman with very heavy eyebrows. That is to say, she differs from Mrs. Shallybaum in those peculiarities that can be artificially changed and resembles her in the one feature that is unchangeable. Do you know if her Christian name happens to be Pauline? Yes, it is. She was a Miss Pauline Hagenbeck, a member of an American theatrical company. What made you ask? 
The name, which Jarvis heard poor Geoffrey struggling to pronounce, seemed to me to resemble Pauline more than any other name. There is one little point that strikes me, said Marchmont. Is it not rather remarkable that the porter should have noticed no difference between the body of Geoffrey and the living man whom he knew by sight, and who must, after all, have been distinctly different in appearance? I'm glad you raised that question, Thorndyke replied, for the very difficulty presented itself to me at the beginning of the case. But on thinking it over, I decided that it was an imaginary difficulty, assuming, as we do, that there was a good deal of resemblance between the two men. Put yourself in the porter's place and follow his mental processes. He is informed that the dead man is lying on the bed in Mr. Blackmore's rooms. Naturally, he assumes that the dead man is Mr. Blackmore, who, by the way, had hinted at suicide only the night before. With this idea, he enters the chambers and sees a man a good deal like Mr. Blackmore and wearing Mr. Blackmore's clothes, lying on Mr. Blackmore's bed. The idea that the body could be that of some other person has never entered his head. If he notes any difference of appearance, he'll put that down to the effects of death, for everyone knows that a man dead looks somewhat different from the same man alive. I take it as evidence of great acuteness on the part of John Blackmore that he should have calculated so cleverly, not only the mental processes of the porter, but the erroneous reasoning which everyone would base on the porter's conclusions. For, since the body was actually Jeffrey's and was identified by the porter as that of his tenant, it has been assumed by everyone that no question was possible as to the identity of Jeffrey Blackmore and the tenant of New Inn. There was a brief silence, and then Marchmont asked, May we take it that we have now heard all the evidence? Yes, replied Thorndyke. That is my case. Have you given information to the police? Stephen asked eagerly. Yes, as soon as I had obtained the statement of the cabman, Ridley, and felt that I had enough evidence to secure a conviction. I called at Scotland Yard and had an interview with the Assistant Commissioner. The case is in the hands of Superintendent Miller of the Criminal Investigation Department, a most acute and energetic officer. I have been expecting to hear that the warrant has been executed, for Mr Miller is usually very punctilious in keeping me informed of the progress of the cases to which I introduce him. We shall hear tomorrow, no doubt. And for the present, said Marchmont, the case seems to have passed out of our hands. I shall enter a caveat all the same, said Mr. Winwood. That doesn't seem very necessary, Marchmont objected. The evidence that we have heard is amply sufficient to ensure a conviction, and there will be plenty more when the police go into the case. And a conviction on the charges of forgery and murder would, of course, invalidate the second will. I shall enter a caveat all the same, repeated Mr. Winwood. As the two partners showed a disposition to become heated over this question, Thorndyke suggested that they might discuss it at leisure by the light of subsequent events. Acting on this hint, for it was now close upon midnight, our visitors prepared to depart, and were in fact just making their way towards the door when the bell rang. Thorndyke flung open the door, and as he recognised his visitor, greeted him with evident satisfaction. Ah, Mr. Miller, we were just speaking of you. These gentlemen are Mr. Stephen Blackmore and his solicitors, Mr. Marchmont and Mr. Winwood. You know Dr. Jarvis, I think. The officer bowed to our friends and remarked, I'm just in time, it seems. A few minutes more and I should have missed these gentlemen. I don't know what you'll think of my news. 
"'You haven't let that villain escape, I hope?' Stephen exclaimed. "'Well,' said the superintendent, "'it's out of my hands and yours too, and so is the woman. "'Perhaps I'd better tell you what has happened.' "'If you would be so kind,' said Thorndyke, motioning the officer to a chair. "'The superintendent seated himself with the manner of a man "'who has had a long and strenuous day, and forthwith began his story. "'As soon as we had your information, "'we procured a warrant for the arrest of both parties.' and then I went straight to their flat with Inspector Badger and a sergeant. There we learned from the attendant that they were away from home and were not expected back until today at about noon. We kept a watch on the premises, and this morning, about the time appointed, a man and a woman, answering to the description, arrived at the flat. We followed them in and saw them enter the lift, and we were going to get into the lift too when the man pulled the rope and away they went. There was nothing for us to do but run up the stairs, which we did as fast as we could race, but they got to their landing first and we were only just in time to see them nip in and shut the door. However, it seemed that we had them safe enough, for there was no dropping out of the windows at that height, so we sent the sergeant to get a locksmith to pick the lock or force the door while we kept on ringing the bell. About three minutes after the sergeant left, I happened to look out of the landing window and saw a hansom pull up opposite the flats. I put my head out of the window and hang me if I didn't see our two friends getting into the cab. It seems that there was a small lift inside the flat communicating with the kitchen and they had slipped down it one at a time. Well, of course, we raced down the stairs like acrobats, but by the time we got to the bottom, the cab was off with a fine start. We ran out into Victoria Street and there we could see it halfway down the street and going like a chariot race. We managed to pick up another hansom and told the cabby to keep the other one in sight and away we went like the very juice, along Victoria Street and Broad Sanctuary, across Parliament Square, over Westminster Bridge, and along York Road. We kept the other beggar in sight, but we couldn't gain an inch on him. Then we turned into Waterloo Station, and as we were driving up the slope, we met another hansom coming down, and when the cabbie kissed his hand and smiled at us, we guessed that he was the sportsman we had been following. But there was no time to ask questions. It's an awkward station with a lot of different exits and it looked a good deal as if our quarry had got away. However, I took a chance. I remembered that the Southampton Express was due to start about this time and I took a shortcut across the lines and made for the platform that it starts from. Just as Badger and I had got to the end, about 30 yards from the rear of the train, we saw a man and a woman running in front of us. Then the guard blew his whistle and the train began to move. The man and the woman managed to scramble into one of the rear compartments and Badger and I raced up the platform like mad. A porter tried to head us off, but Badger capsized him and we both sprinted harder than ever and just hopped on the footboard of the guard's van as the train began to get up speed. The guard couldn't risk putting us off, so he had to let us into his van, which suited us exactly, as we could watch the train on both sides from the lookout. And we did watch, I can tell you, for our friend in front had seen us. His head was out of the window as we climbed onto the footboard. However, nothing happened until we stopped at Southampton West. There, I need not say, we lost no time in hopping out, for we naturally expected our friends to make a rush for the exit. But they didn't. Badger watched the platform, and I kept a lookout to see that they didn't slip away across the line from the offside. But still, there was no sign of them. Then I walked up the train to the compartment which I had seen them enter. And there they were, apparently fast asleep in the corner by the offside window the man leaning back with his mouth open and the woman resting against him with her head on his shoulder. She gave me quite a turn when I went in to look at them, for she had her eyes half closed and seemed to be looking around at me with the most horrible expression, but I found afterwards that the peculiar appearance of looking round was due to the cast in her eye. They were dead, I suppose, 
said Thorndyke. Yes, sir, stone dead, and I found these on the floor of the carriage. He held up two tiny yellow glass tubes, each labelled hypodermic tabloids, aconitine nitrate, GR 1640th. Ha! exclaimed Thorndyke. This fellow was well up in alkaloidal poisons, it seems, and they appear to have gone about prepared for emergencies. These tubes each contain 20 tabloids, a 32nd of a grain altogether, so we may assume that about 12 times the medicinal dose was swallowed. Death must have occurred in a few minutes, and a merciful death too. A more merciful death than they deserved, exclaimed Stephen, when one thinks of the misery and suffering that they inflicted on poor old Uncle Geoffrey, I would sooner have had them hanged. It's better as it is, sir, said Miller. There's no need now to raise any questions in detail at the inquest. The publicity of a trial for murder would have been very unpleasant for you. I wish Dr Jarvis had given the tip to me instead of to that confounded overcautious... But there, I mustn't run down my brother officers, and it's easy to be wise after the event. Good night, gentlemen. I suppose this accident disposes of your business as far as the will is concerned. I suppose it does, agreed Mr Windward. But I shall enter a caveat, all the same. End of chapter 16, part 2 Recording by R. E. Faust End of The Mystery of 31 New Inn by R. Austin Freeman